So if you've been with us, uh, David has done a great job going through the, the book of Luke. Uh, if you haven't, you're going to get a slight recap today just because um, the problem with having two different people preaching through a book is that you oftentimes end up with two different ways of looking at it. Does that make sense? So for me, I'm the guy that wants questions answered. And so the best way to understand that is to ask questions. So I want to explain a little bit about the book of Luke to you so that you understand where we're getting because the section that we're going to read really is contingent on everything David's preached on in the last couple of weeks. So the gospel of Luke is really a unique book in the fact that out of the gospels, each gospel has its own thing that it wants to communicate to you. The gospel of Luke is written by a Greek to Greeks in the form that they would have known as a biography. It's where we actually get biographies today. But a Greek biography works differently than a biography if you went to the store and picked one up. So the gospel of Luke, what it wants to do is, as a true Greek biography is take a person and explain their life to you in such a way that you will understand why this person's life is somehow important to the community, whether it's political or they've done something great and all those things. So Luke, what he's doing is he's giving a historical Greek biography so that you will know, the reader, that Jesus is the most amazing human being to have ever lived. In addition to that, Luke also works as an apologetic. It's trying to explain to people who don't know about Christ and why we celebrate him and why we look at him the way we do, who he is so that you will understand who Jesus is. So it's a really kind of an interesting way of looking at things. What it requires us to do as Westerners, as people in the modern age, is to actually not look at the, the Gospel of Luke the way you would read a, a modern biography. I, I know this is hard, but the way that we think in America has been shaped by the way the Western Middle Ages worked, how the Catholic Church thought, how the Reformation affected the Catholic Church, how the Renaissance worked, and then how Puritanism brought, brought uh, Christianity to America. I realize you don't necessarily think that way, but we think linearly and we expect all of our history to go linearly. We expect everything to go, well, the War of 1812 happened, and then in 1814, this happened. Does that make sense? The book of Luke doesn't do that. So you have to, at some point, suspend what you expect, which is chronological events, and rather revert back to being a really good reader, right? In a day and age when people are not really good readers. To be a really good reader. So it means when you're, asked, when you're reading through the book of Luke, you need to do two things. One, try not to import information in. What do I mean by that? As Christians, we want to import information in. We want to read the, the Gospel of Luke and say, well, wait a minute. I know that Jesus in Matthew was doing this before he did this in Luke. So how does that work? Well, the way the book was written and the people it was written to at the time it was written, they're not asking you to ask that. What you need to do is not try to import other things into Luke. You're supposed to look at Luke and say, he is giving me all the information I need in the order in which I need it to prove the point. And his point is, Jesus Christ is the most important man to have ever lived. And his life and salvation through Christ affects all of humanity. So when you're reading through it, that's what you should be doing. Not worrying about whether or not it's historically, chronologically in order, because it's not. But it doesn't need to be either. Does that make sense? 
So for me, when I'm going through and reading it, and when David is preaching, what I'm doing when David is preaching is I'm partially listening to David and I'm partially reading because I get all excited, like, well, I want to know what happens, right? So I'm going to give you a slight recap of what's going on in the Gospel of Luke up to Luke 4, and then a little bit of it of Luke 4, and then we're going to read today's scripture, and hopefully you'll see how all the things kind of link together. And I'll try not to do it in a really long way, because for those of you that know me, I like to talk a lot. So the first thing that Luke does is he talks about the incarnation. So when we have Mary, and she, she's, the Holy Spirit comes, and Jesus is conceived we have this really interesting theological concept called the incarnation. The incarnation is where God himself and humanity combine so that in Christ, he is completely God, so 100% God and 100% man at the same time. It's a paradox. And as Westerners, we hate paradox. We do. We like everything to kind of somehow numerically work out. But the Christian faith is actually based on a whole lot of paradox. A whole lot of things that don't seem like they can work out at the same time. Gregory, Gregory the Great, uh, uh, one of the early church fathers in about the, the fourth century, he said, the in, in the incarnation, Christ takes on all that we are that he might heal all that we are. This is going to be important for our conversation today. He, Christ takes on all that we are that he might heal all that we are. That means that he has to take on everything that it means to be human. In order to mediate, when Paul's talking about Christ being the mediator between God and man, the only way to mediate is to be perfectly neutrally in the middle. That's so, the only way that Christ can do that is to be completely God and completely man so that he can mediate what's in the middle. It's important that we talk about that because a lot of times you'll hear people say, oh, well, Jesus did this as God or he did this as man, but you can't do that. You can't bifurcate or split the incarnation. He does everything. Jesus, when he's doing everything, he's doing everything as both God and man. Everything. So in that concept, you have to have that idea of that's what's going on. So when he goes and he's baptized and the Holy Spirit comes on him, it's not like suddenly he's imbued with extra power. What he is, is he's experiencing something that God has intended for humanity to experience, which is to be partakers of the divine. So as a human being here, Christ who is already God and man is receiving the Holy Spirit that the Holy Spirit might lead him. Why? Because we as believers who are not God, we are human. When you become a Christian and you put your faith in Christ and you're baptized, you receive the Holy Spirit and God himself dwells in you and leads and guides you. We see that in what happens with Jesus, right? The Holy Spirit comes on him and what's the first thing that happens? He goes into the wilderness for 40 days. And the, the scriptures tell us that Satan tempted him for 40 days. We get to see a snippet, three little snippets. But he's being tempted the whole time. And so the Holy Spirit is leading him and guiding him. Why? Because as Christians, when we as human beings receive that, we understand our connection with, with God. Not only is God the Father, our Father, but we have salvation through Christ, and we have life through the Spirit. So you get to see that neat little snippet going on in Jesus' baptism. So he leads him into the, to the wilderness, and he goes off and is tempted, and then he puts him, it says the Spirit brought him to Galilee. <laughs> That's what Luke tells us. So there, the reason this is important is we're going to have an interesting thing that's going to happen in your text at the end of our chapter today. 
that I want to point out, because I'm not going to get into textual criticism a whole lot. David did a really good job of talking at it on Workspace for the Tuesday Bible study. So if you go here on a regular basis and you haven't gotten into Workspace, you should. And then you can go and see David's good thing on textual criticism and how do, how do we get the translations we got. It's really, really well done. Anyway, but it takes him into Galilee. So he goes into Galilee, and the first thing that we hear about is Jesus being where? He's in Nazareth. He's at home. He goes home to his home church, and there he is in the synagogue and says all sorts of delightful things. Do you guys remember that? A couple, two weeks ago, for those of you who are here? I'll recap it for you because, again, it's going to be important. Jesus goes home to his synagogue in Nazareth where he grew up, and he goes and he reads from the book of Isaiah, talking about the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach the good news and this is a messianic passage. All the people in the synagogue know it's a messianic passage, and they know what he's saying. He is saying, when he says, today this is fulfilled in your presence, he is saying to them, without saying it directly, I am the Messiah. Right? So you would think they'd be happy, like, yeah, we've been waiting for you know, thousands of years for this. This is super amazing. The Messiah is here. Their reaction is a little bit different, right? The, he, we, we not actually get all the dialogue that's going on because, again, as the author, Luke is trying to get you to see a certain point. So you're supposed to, as a good reader, ask good questions. So Jesus' next thing that he says to them is, well, I'm sure what you would say to me is, physician, heal thyself. And you're like, what? This is what I did, at least. I don't know what you thought. But I Scratch my head, and I'm like, what are you talking about? So then he goes on and goes, I bet you're going to say to me, why don't you do here amongst us what you did in Capernaum? And again, I only have the book of Luke, and I'm reading, and I'm going, well, what did you do in Capernaum? What are you talking about? Right? Just be asking really good questions. So, well, then Jesus says, well, you know what? At the time of Elijah, when he stopped up the rain and it didn't rain, and he had, there were all these widows that needed to be cared for in Israel, and he didn't go to any of them. He went to this one who was not in Israel. He went to a Gentile and cared for her. And then he goes, well, you know, what about in the time of Elisha, right, who took over from Elijah? Elisha prayed, and David, again, his sermon's online. You can hear this too because he does a really good job with this one. But he says, well, he prayed for a double portion, right? So that means Elisha's ministry is supposed to be twice as awesome as Elijah's ministry. And Elijah was doing all kinds of crazy good stuff right? There's a lot going on. He goes, so there was only one leper that was healed during that entire ministry. There's a whole bunch of lepers in Israel, but only the Assyrian king got cleansed. Wow. So what is he saying to the people in Nazareth? This is a really neat thing. He's saying to them, well, you know, I would heal people here like I did in Capernaum and drive out demons, but you have no faith. You're faithless. I mean, if you had faith, if you had even a monogram, a little tiny bit of faith, then I would be doing those miracles here. But you just look at me as being Joseph's son, right? You don't look at me as being Messiah. You don't look at me as being this healer. You look at me as being the carpenter's kid. Like, Jesus built tables for us and built houses. Like, come on, dude. Really? Seriously? So you know what their response is, right? They pick him up and they're going to toss him off a cliff in town they're mad. So it was really neat because in, in that same sermon, again, 
that David did. David said, you know, a lot of times we look at the Pharisees that way and we're really critical of the Pharisees and we go, well, you know, the Pharisees are these bad guys. The Pharisees were people who were trying to lead their people spiritually and trying to do a good job and trying to get them to understand these things and they let a lot of other things in the world get ahead of that. So sometimes we're probably overly critical. So I think the analogy that we should think about with this, with what happened in Nazareth, would be like, I don't know, me coming in here this morning and saying to you, your lives are probably a wreck. And I I think this is really neat that Stefan shared what he shared. A lot of our lives are a wreck, and we're just covering. We're just covering up. We just are. So, you know, Jesus wants to heal you. And this this is really ties in with our message today, so I really want you to hear this. Jesus still heals people today just like he did 2,000 years ago. You know how that works? Believe it or not, this will be shocking to you. Through the church, because the church is the body of Christ. So it's meant you're supposed to actually think of it that way. We are the body of Christ. That means we are actually his actual body doing the same things that his actual body did when he walked around. So that's why when Jesus says to the apostles, you will do greater things than you've seen me do. And what did the apostles do? Greater things than they saw Christ do. Why? Because he gave them the Holy Spirit. And unlike in the Old Testament, when you sinned and you lost the Spirit, the Spirit became onto a person and stayed. And then you got collectively all these people together who share the same Heavenly Father, who share the same salvation in Christ, and share the same Holy Spirit, And they're told, you have the ability to do all the same things that Jesus did, and you are required to. You should go do it. So does Jesus still heal today? The answer is yes. He heals through us, through the church. But there are a lot of us who are here today who who do. We cover up the things that are wrong with us because we think when we come to church, we're supposed to be all smiles and giggles somehow. The reality of it is you've come to a hospital this is, that's what this is. This, the church is a hospital where sick people come to get well, to meet the healer and to heal each other and to be that strength. Because who knows, when you help me up, I might be the one that helps you up later. So it was like Jesus going to his church and saying, hey, you guys all have no faith. You're all showing up on, on, on Sabbath, on Saturday morning to hear the word read, and you're all not doing the work you're not supposed to do and doing all those things, and you're going through the motions, and inside you're dead. So I want you to understand, in, both in Hebrew and in Greek, to believe means to act. So you, I could say I'm a pumpkin, I might even believe I'm a pumpkin. I'm getting round like a pumpkin. Uh, But if I don't produce the things a pumpkin produces, I am not a pumpkin. But I might believe it. I might say it. I might even convince you that I believe it. But belief means to act. It means to do something with it. Right? And I I think that's, again, I'm going to just pick on Stefan since he was willing to come up and share But isn't that what Stefan said? Hey, I had all this head knowledge. I knew all this stuff, but it wasn't until it impacted my heart and I realized that knowing stuff wasn't enough. I had to do something with it. And that's what Jesus said to the people of Nazareth. It's neat that you guys go to church on Saturday and listen to the word and then go home and do nothing with it. If you had even a monarchy of faith, even a little tiny bit, I would heal you. But you don't believe I can do it. 
So there's no healing for you. Right? So they, they go to take and throw him off a cliff and kill him. Super exciting. And then Luke does something really amazing. And this is the thing I want you to catch. Again, he goes back in time for you. But in modern English translations, you lose it. Because the word that's used to start the section in Greek is the word chi, which could mean and, or it can mean even, or it can mean also. It's up to the guy reading it to decide what he thinks is going on. So in English, they just typically just go, well, it's and. The idea is that Luke wants you to have asked a question. What in the world did Jesus do in Capernaum, and why are they so angry they're going to throw him off a cliff? So he's kind of taking you back in time. Jesus started his ministry in Galilee, and he apparently went to Capernaum before he went to Nazareth. And the people in Nazareth heard about the cool things he did at Capernaum, and they couldn't figure out if you're truly the Messiah and you're saying you are, then why aren't you doing all the cool stuff here that you did there? And he says, basically, because you're going through the motions. Just like the Israelites did when they were being punished right before the Assyrians came and took them into exile because they refused to obey God, they refused to get rid of their idols and follow him, that's what he said to them. Even the Assyrian king, the enemy who ends up coming and destroying the northern ten tribes, even he had more faith than you did. That's why he got healed. And they're like, oh! So then last week, last week David went through and talked about, so then Jesus would go back to Capernaum, we're like back in time, Right? And he gets up and he, he basically he's preaching to them and they're super amazed like this guy speaks of like one with authority because what he's not doing is what the, the, the rabbis would have done at the time which is would have said the scripture says this. Rabbi Gamaliel interprets this scripture this way and Jesus just went in and said this is what it means. And they're like wow that makes a lot of sense. And then he heals this guy who's demon possessed and they're like holy cow. What just happened? Like, we don't have to live in fear of demons coming in and invading our bodies and making us do things we don't want to. We're f this guy can set us free. So with that, if we can put the scripture up for today, we'll read in Luke today. So 438. So I'm going to actually, it's the NIV that's up here, and my mine is the NASB, and I don't want to confuse you any more than I have to. So I'm going to read from up here. So Jesus left the synagogue, right? So he preaches in the synagogue. So he leaves the synagogue and went to the home of Simon. Now Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever and they asked Jesus to help her. So he bent over her and rebuked the fever and it left her. And she got up at once and began to wait on them. Next, there you go. Uh, at sunset, the people brought to Jesus all who had various kinds of sickness and laying his hands on each one, he healed them. Moreover, demons came out of many people shouting, you are the son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Messiah. At daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place. The people were looking for him and when they came to where he was, they tried to keep him from leaving them. But he said, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also because that is why I was sent. And he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. So this is what I, I'm going to take you through and explain a little bit of the Greek that you've missed. Because English is not as great of a language for explaining things as it could be, which is very sad. 
So one of the things that goes on in, the, in all this chapter of Luke, all of chapter four, which is really neat, which is why you should all learn Greek. Right? I've, I say that every time I preach. If only you, if we could just read this in Greek, you would all, there would be no sermon. You'd be like, oh, that makes perfect sense. So when he said, when the scripture says she was ill, this is talking about Simon Peter's mother, Okay. When it says that she was ill, it's in the imperfect sense. In the imperfect sense, it just means this. There's kind of two ways of talking about the past in Greek that are major. One of them is like a snapshot, the aorist. It says, chink, this, you see in this picture, all the people in church looking confused. That, it happened, and it's a done event. In the imperfect, what it's telling you is there's an ongoing thing. This event, this thing isn't just a singular episode, it's an ongoing episode. So she has a fever, she's sick, and it's not like, well, she got the flu today, and so Peter, you know, Peter Simon says to Jesus, would you like to come over for after Shabbat meal? Oh, I'd love it, it'd be great, the synagogue is over, we'll go have lunch. That's what they're doing. They're going home for, 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 for the meal. Well, my mother-in-law came down with the flu this morning, so I'm afraid that, you know, we're gonna have to ad hoc things. No, this is an illness of his mother-in-law that is ongoing. So in the Gospel of Luke, there's certain things we don't know. If you went outside the Gospel of Luke, you'd realize that Peter and, and, and Simon already kind of have a relationship. But Luke doesn't tell you that. Luke just tells you, look, service got over. He drove this demon out. This guy named Simon says, hey, you should come over for lunch, right? He gets over there, and his mother-in-law has this, this, this fever that she's had ongoing, it's going on into, like, she's continually sick. So what's Jesus' response to her? He stands over her and he rebukes the fever. It's the same thing he does later on, both forward and backwards, when he's commanding things to happen, he rebukes them. So he rebukes a demon out earlier, right? He rebukes him, he stops him from talking, and then he commands him. So at Jesus' word, just a word of command, things happen. It's a pretty amazing thing. Right? Like, can you imagine being able to do that? Like, at a word, have something happen? Uh, the closest I ever get to it is with my dog. And as my dog gets older, he listens less and less. But at a word of a command, I can get my dog to, to, to react and do something because it knows what, what response it should give me. So as we're looking at this, you should be thinking as a person, that's a pretty amazing thing that one guy, this Jesus that Luke is trying to tell us is the most important human being to ever live, at a word, not only does he drive a demon out, but at a word, a fever leaves. He instantly heals her by rebuking the fever, right? And then what's her response? Her response, is to go back to doing what she was normally doing. She, he's restored her to a previous state of affairs. That's what, I want you to understand why this is important. When Jesus is healing people, he's returning them to the previous state of affairs of what they should be. Because what Luke wants you to see is that in the incarnation, Christ is gonna take humanity and restore them to the previous state they were supposed to be in. Do you understand that? That's, the gospel of Luke is telling you, Jesus has the power to reset humanity, to take us from dying and being in a corrupt world where sin and corruption and death are the norm for man, to being holy like he is holy, 
to be his hands and feet to continue on the ministry even when he's not with us. We should be like, whoa, that's amazing. But that's, that's all Luke is doing. He's just saying, she had a fever, she was really sick, and it was ongoing sick, and then Jesus came in and he's like, stop being sick! And she got up and went, whew, all right, who wants lunch? You look like you want lunch. Let me get you lunch, right? That's a, that's a pretty amazing thing. So she instantly gets up and she's going about her business, and then what happens next is really neat. The sun goes down. Right? And you're all really good Jewish people, so you understand what happens when the sun goes down, right? So in the Sabbath, the Sabbath is sundown Friday to sundown Saturday. So what happens is when the sun goes down on Friday, you just stop working. You had a specific amount of things that the Pharisees told you were okay to do and not okay not to do based on their understanding of the law. It's pretty cool, right? So you plan certain things out ahead of time, like the afternoon lunch that, that, that you know, Simon's mother-in-law is going to serve, right? Do her thing. That's cool. So you, you go through and you have these set things. And then when the sun goes down on Saturday, you go about your normal work. The most amazing thing happens in Capernaum when the sun goes down. And Luke wants you to know what it is. So it says, as the sun is going down, the people of Capernaum brought every single sick person in town to Jesus. They brought everybody. Why? Right? You're, as a good reader, you should be thinking that. Why? Because he's already told you that this didn't happen in Nazareth for a reason. Right? You see why Luke does things out of order sometimes? You go, wait a minute. Now I understand why the people in Nazareth were angry. <laughs> right? Because their response to him was not to bring all their sick to him to be healed. Their response was to throw him off a cliff for insulting their lack of faith. The people in Capernaum learned something at that one little synagogue service because they don't know that Peter's mother-in-law has been healed necessarily. Word probably went out. But Luke doesn't tell us, so we're not going to infer it. What we know is he drove a demon out of somebody. And not only did he drive the demon out, but the man wasn't hurt. I want you to understand how important that is. He drove the demon out, but the man wasn't hurt when he did it. And the people went, if he can heal like this, that he can heal our ongoing things. And so when you go, the sun sets down, right? And the people can now work. So what are they doing? They're working at bringing the sick and the demon-possessed to Simon Peter's house. And again, it's in the imperfect sense. When it's talking about their diseases, these people that were sick, it's ongoing. It's in the imperfect. Their diseases are in the imperfect because you want you to know these are people that have been chronically ill and chronically demon-possessed. It's not like they just woke up with the flu today. These are people who have been suffering in sickness and in demon possession for a period of time, and they need something, and the people look at Jesus and say, that's what they need. How often in life do we see people who are physically ill and spiritually ill, and we ourselves as believers go, they need Jesus? Because that's supposed to be our response. We're supposed to look at other people, and oftentimes, if we're really honest, like, Stefan's story at ourselves and say, if I truly believe, if I truly believe that Jesus heals, if I truly believe that, that in the incarnation, God is trying to heal me from here, sickness, corruption, and death, 
to hear the original intention, which is this divine relationship with God for the rest of eternity. If I truly believe that, that's what I need, that I need Jesus to heal me and I need to ask him to heal me. And how does Jesus heal in the modern age but through the church? That's why in Hebrews it says, don't give up meeting as some are in the habit of doing because you need the church. We need each other. Desperately, we need each other. And there are people outside of this building, this is why I love what David's doing with the five by five, who desperately need to be healed. Do you love them enough? Do you look at them and say, they need Christ? Their life is a wreck, or they're sick, or they're dying. They need help. They need Christ. An ongoing sense of sickness is what, that it's in the imperfect for a reason. You go, as a Greek reader, you're like, do, 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 simple words, simple words. Oh, why is it that? Oh, it's in the imperfect because you just, they want, he wants you to know, this is ongoing. These people have been sick for a really long time. So they come to Jesus, right? And he heals them. And it says he heals all of them. Why? Because the people coming believed that Jesus could heal them. That's why they're there. So he heals them. And he's driving demons out. It's pretty amazing. It's what are the demons doing? The demons are saying, we know you. We know who you are. You're the son of God. And so he rebukes them. Same thing he did with the fever, right? At a command, he stops them from speaking. Why? Because at that point, Jesus doesn't want two things. One, he doesn't want the enemy telling people who he is because can you trust a demon? Are demons trustworthy? No, they're, they're not trustworthy. Not trustworthy people. So he's not letting them speak because he doesn't want people hearing about who he is from, pe- from, from the demons who are the enemy, or the, who are the antagonist against God. And I don't want you to think in, of enemy in terms of like somehow an equality of power. There is God and everything else, right? Demons are a created being. There's God and there is everything else. So it's not like God's up there going, oh, how will this work out, okay? But they're the enemy of us as humans. They're not our friends. They're not out here to help us. And so Jesus doesn't want them sharing that information. And what he wants to do is he wants people to have a redesigned image of what the Messiah looks like. And you get that further on in Luke. Right now what you have in Luke is Jesus has complete and utter command of disease and complete and utter command of the spiritual realm. Why is Jesus the greatest man to ever walk the earth? Because at a command, he is able to fix anything. It's a pretty amazing thing. So he stops the demon. So now all of a sudden his thing in Nazareth makes a lot of sense, right? The demon tries to come out. He just, he reads the Isaiah passage. You know, and, and they're like, he's like, I'm the Messiah. And they're like, throw him off a cliff. <laughs> Wait a minute. What? Right? Even the demons know who he is and believe, but his own town does not. They cannot see past what they know him to be to see who he truly is. And so there's nothing good that can come out of that demon speaking. So then what does Jesus do? This is really neat too. I think it's amazing. He's, he, he gets up early. He goes to the synagogue. He says something in Capernaum in the synagogue. Something pretty amazing, I'm sure, right? Drives a demon out, goes home, has lunch, heals Simon's mother-in-law, has probably a really nice relaxing afternoon, good conversation. And then the sun goes down and all of a sudden all the whole town is at Simon's house. Imagine the craziness of that. So he stays up all night and heals people. Jesus at, not, at no point goes, come on, guys, I'm super tired. 
He sees what they need, knows he has the ability to do it, and he steps up and helps. And he heals them all night long. And then when that gets over, what does he do? Early morning, he goes off to a solitary place. Now, we learn in Luke later on why he goes to the solitary place. He goes to pray. He goes to spend time with the Father, right? So he does that. But all we know is that he leaves, and they freak out. They're like, where did he go? We have to hold on to him. Do you see the contrast between the two towns? You have the town he grew up in that wants to throw him off a cliff to be rid of him because he's pointing out the fact that they're just going through the motions of belief. They're not really believing. And the town that loves him so much that he has done so much for because of their belief, they don't want him to leave. They're like, don't leave. Please don't leave. How can we make it without you? Do you feel that? I think a big portion of us in the Christian life, a portion of belief, is that we should be saying, where's Jesus today? <laughs> Where is he? I can't make it without him. And if we, you just look around and you can't find Jesus in your own life, you should freak out a little bit. Where'd he go? Where is he at? And that's the beauty of the body of Christ and why all the time you hear me say, you came to faith as an individual, but you ceased to be an individual in faith and you became part of the body of Christ. That means you're as intricately connected to me as I am to you. And if I am suffering in sin, then my sin will affect you. Do we love each other enough to not just seek out when someone's hurting, but to be sought out when we're hurting? To say, I realize, like Stefan in 20, before 2015, to love the body enough to say, I'm hurting and I need help, and it's embarrassing and horrible to ask, but I need help. Because the healing that Christ still brings to the world today comes through the body. And if we're not healthy, how can we share the love of God with others? And that's really what the love of God is, right? It, it, and if you wanna have a really neat conversation with me, you, we can schedule this, but um, even in hell, people will experience the love of God for the rest of eternity. Because that's the nature of who God is. It's just in hell, those people don't want to experience the love of God and their selfishness. Can you imagine how terrible hell would be knowing all the opportunities you had to come to faith in Christ and how much God loves you and yet hating him even more than you hate him now? Uh, that would be hell. But the reality of the situation is we need one another. We're healed by one another. So Jesus goes off and they're like, don't go. And he goes, no, you don't understand. I need to go share the good news, and it's in the imperfect, right? His going and sharing the gospel is in the imperfect. He, it's saying it needs to be the ongoing thing that I do. There's a lot of imperfects in this passage because you're supposed to see the ongoing things and see how they change. But Jesus sharing the gospel is not ongoing, it, it, or not, not ongoing. It never ceases. It continues to be ongoing. I do this. This is why I'm here. And then you look back at the beginning of chapter four and you go, oh, it makes a lot of sense. And you see this contrast of life. And too often, we're in one of the two contrasts and we just aren't, won't admit it. So I want to end with one, with, I'm going to end with a couple of things, but I don't want to take up too much more extra time. But one of the things that, that's going on here at the very end is it, it says, uh, and he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. And um, it's, depending on what version you read, will to say either Judea or Galilee. So here's my one textual criticism for the day. It's probably supposed to be the Galilee reading and not the Judean reading because the way Luke brackets the intro is by the spirit, he brought him into Galilee and then he takes you out of chronological order to prove a point, 
right? Again, both episodes are true. The order doesn't matter because that's not his point. And again, as Westerners, we want, new, we want, oh God, we like twitch a little bit. Like, it needs to be sequential. But 2,000 years ago, it didn't need to be sequential. It's still a true event. It still happened, but it's highlighting a point that you're supposed to catch as a good reader. And by having it be Galilee too, and again, half the readings, like, in all the Greek manuscripts, one family of Greek manuscripts that produced the King, the King James Version of the Bible have it as Galilee. And then you get into textual criticism, which is where scholarly people, who I've apparently been claimed of being, which is kind of flattering, um, they go, well, you know, it, it says Judea in these manuscripts, and nobody would make the reading harder or easy. They always make it easier. Therefore, it's a really long discussion. If you want to have it, It'll take an hour and a half and you have to buy me lunch. But I will have the conversation with you. So the idea though is that he's still in Galilee and he's, he, Luke is bracketing this so that you know what's the ongoing action of the imperfect for Jesus is he's gonna keep sharing the gospel around in Galilee. One of the places he ends up is at home and you get this neat contrast. So where does that leave us as believers? It leaves us in a couple of places. One, we really should be self-evaluating where we're at. Are we the people who are just going to church on Sunday mornings because there is something greater than we are and we're not sure what it is and we're not sure how to access it and we're trying to figure that out. But we don't want to give up all of the poor sinful behavior that our lives are made up of. Which by the way, I've been. I, I would be the first one. If you really want to know all the things that are wrong with me, again, it'll take an hour and a half and you have to buy me lunch. But I'll tell you all the things I struggle with. I'm not perfect, but here, here at the hospital, here at the hospital of 6-8, are a whole lot of people who have been broken just like you, who are in the process of being healed by the Savior and in the process of understanding what it means to live a holy life, to live a life just that lives belief, that truly lives belief. Some of you are here today and you've already made that crossover. You go, yeah, man, I know what it means to live and believe and what an amazing thing, right? Then let's be healing one another. Let's be about one another. Let's be about the church, about encouraging one another, the people that are in this room today, and about the people that you have experience with every day in life to let them know that they can be healed. Because does Jesus still heal today? The answer is yes, through the church. Does that mean that every person that we know that has cancer is gonna be healed? Maybe, maybe not. They would have to believe that Jesus was going to heal them, and could an amazing thing happen? Absolutely, because Christ still heals today. We just struggle with belief, right? What about the people who are struggling spiritually in our lives, the people we go to school with, or our neighbors, or the people we work with, or our friends, or our family, who need to be told they can be healed through Christ, whose lives can change because we take the life-changing Savior to them. And that should be the challenge for every day, right? To heal those around us as Christ is healing us. So, yeah, if you're in the band, you should come forward because my prayer is gonna take 32 seconds. <laughs> you doubt me, but it will. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on us sinners. Give us the grace that we need and the power and strength through your spirit that we might bring glory and honor to you in all that we say and do, that we might love one another in the church in a way that shows the world that we belong to you, that you would be glorified by our actions.